I wanted to start out today's episode a little differently. Recently in my hometown of Whitesburg, Kentucky, and many other parts of eastern Kentucky, were ravaged by devastating flooding. So many friends and family, including my parents, lost everything from their homes, pets, and even loved ones overnight as a result of this catastrophic national disaster. Recovery will take time, and the people of eastern Kentucky are resilient, but they need our help more than ever. In the description of this episode, I'll put some links to ways that you can help those in need. Last month, we worked with our local communities to bring much-needed supplies and volunteer efforts to areas heavily impacted by the flood. We also donated all of the Patreon proceeds we received for the month of August to charities assisting directly with those affected. As a friend and patron wisely said, when it rains and the waters rise, so do we. And we'll get through this together. Eastern Kentucky Strong. last weekend of spring break, me and the guys decided to head off campus in my buddy's old Volkswagen. You know, one of those microbus things? Anyway, we figured we would head out to the forest and camp for the weekend. A little mini vacation before classes started back up. Everything was uneventful most of the night. I don't remember who it was exactly that went out there that night into the woods, but when nature calls, it's best to answer it. He looked shaken when he got back, like he'd seen a ghost. Said he felt like someone or something was watching him the whole time and that he'd heard something sniffing in the woods around him. Of course he had heard something. It was the woods in the middle of the spring. We all thought it must have been a wild hog or something else. <laughs> we couldn't have been more wrong. As the night grew darker, we started to hear something rustling the leaves around us, circling the campsite. We shined our flashlights all around, scanning the tree lines for any sign of what could be making that noise. A bear? Coyotes, maybe. It was hard to be sure, and we couldn't see a damn thing. That's when the howling started. That damn howling. It's forever burned into my ears, blood-curdling and unnatural. It didn't sound like any animal any of us had ever heard before. The louder it got, the more insane it became almost as if it were cackling or mocking us and circling around the camp like it had cornered its prey. Then we saw the eyes, blood red and peeking through the trees, at first on one side, then on the other, dancing around the edge of the campsite where the campfire slowly blends with the darkness of the forest. Whatever this thing was, we didn't plan on sticking around to find out. We all piled in the Volkswagen and peeled down that dirt road so fast you couldn't even imagine. Running on pure adrenaline and fear, we barreled away from the campsite and made our way back towards Murray. But this thing, whatever the hell this thing was, it wasn't going to let us get away that easy. It wasn't long before we noticed something big rushing towards the back of the bus, barely visible in the taillights and somehow keeping pace. We were about to round the corner onto the main road when it finally caught up to the bus. The whole thing jolted back and shook us all around the inside. Whatever this thing was, it was holding and pulling us towards it. Floor it. We all screamed, begging whoever was driving to get us out of there now. He gave it everything we had, finally breaking three of that thing's grasp. We didn't stop until we made it back to campus. Once safe, we got out of the bus to check the damage. That's when our jaws hit the floor. Cut into the metal side of the engine compartment were four giant gash marks.
What you just heard was a retelling of one of the more frightening encounters with the creature. In 1973, a group of Murray State University students experienced this event while on a camping trip at the Land Between the Lakes National Park. Sharing a home with both Kentucky and Tennessee, this national park sits nestled between Lake Barkley and the Kentucky Lake and was designated as such in 1963 by President John F. Kennedy. This picturesque 170,000-acre outdoorsman's paradise is one of the crown jewels of the national park system and is home to a wide range of flora and fauna. But as night falls on the Barkley in Kentucky, these woods take on a much more sinister appearance. Locals know the legends. They've heard the stories. And they know what stalks these woods at night. A creature that was taller than the average human, covered in long, thick hair, claws that could cut through steel, and stalking the woods, reeking of a freshly exhumed grave. Some say it's a sort of werewolf. Others say it's some form of twisted bear. But one thing is certain to everyone who lives near the National Park. If you go out into those woods at night, you better be prepared. Because you may find yourself face to face with the glowing red eyes of the beast that stalks the land between the lakes. In last week's episode, we talked about the legend of Pope Lick and how that creature shares similar qualities to that of a skinwalker found in Native American legend. Check out that episode for a more detailed description. But in summary, a skinwalker is a human with the ability to transform into any creature they wish, given this ability through some form of taboo or violent act that they committed against their tribe or family. The earliest legends describing a creature lurking in the land between the lakes national forest speak of a creature that had the ability to shapeshift and would lure its victims away from their tribe and into the dense forest at night before tearing them apart. This creature was said to have once been a Shawnee shaman, who now as a spirit stalks the woods seeking revenge after being killed while taking on the visage of a wolf. Early accounts from French explorers and traders in the region, however, were said to have been warned by Shawnee fur traders of a shadowy presence that lurked in the forest between the lakes, though the Frenchman described the creature as a loup-garou, or more commonly known as a werewolf. In French-Canadian folklore, the tale of the loup-garou is tied to Catholic morality. Religious failing was often linked to the loup-garou curse. Only a shedding of blood could free a cursed man. French-Canadian Lugaru stories were generally less violent. This, unlike the version found in the United States and Europe, modern popular depictions of werewolves from movies like The Wolfman are very different from the traditional French-Canadian tales. From the early days of American expansion into Kentucky, stories of hunters disappearing and otherworldly howling coming from the forests at night, and encounters with mutilated corpses of bison, which were roaming the land at the time, were found laying half-eaten with their throats torn open by something with massive claws. Over the years, many people in the areas surrounding Land Between the Lakes have had their own encounters with the creature in some form or fashion. Local farmers tell stories of finding their cattle slaughtered in the fields, throats torn out much like the bison from legend. Some folks even speak about having close calls while driving the roads outside the forest at night, seeing some large bipedal animal racing across the dark, desolate roads, only visible for a quick moment from their headlights, causing drivers to slam into their brakes in fear of a frontal collision. But the most sad and gruesome encounter is said to have taken place in a family motorhome in 1982. An encounter that was so brutal and unexplainable that all reports of the event were destroyed in fear that tourism would come to a complete halt and the already struggling area would suffer complete and economical collapse. It is said that newspapers were paid off for their silence, police officers sworn to keep the investigation under wraps, and local authorities were said to have completely covered up the entire incident. 
meaning that this story is hard to corroborate. But the amount of information available from these various sources, as well as one supposed eyewitness who came out a few years ago, is intriguing. The following is a retelling that was collected from a third-party witness to the massacre who submitted their encounter to the Phantoms and Monsters website back in 2012. I'll leave a link in the description of this episode for anyone wanting to read the entire thing. A warning, the information you're about to hear is graphic in detail and may not be suited for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. They had gotten a call to help with an investigation at one of the many rural campgrounds down in the land between the lakes. Tourist season was about to start in a few weeks, so as usual, there were some early arrivals that had come to claim prime camping spots before the areas were overrun with tents, campers, and travel trailers. Sun was setting low in the sky when they arrived at the scene. Several other official vehicles were already there, with many more to come as they would soon find out. Many coming from other counties and a few coming all the way from another state. Several of these to come were coroners from different counties. One coroner vehicle was already present, as well as an ambulance, which would prove useless, as there was no one there left to save. The victims were all dead. Quite dead. Completely, totally, and thoroughly deceased. A young married couple that had come down to take it easy for a few days were the first to discover the ghastly scene. Neither one of them wanted to stay behind while the other went for help, so they both nervously traveled to the nearest town, Grand Rivers, and called the authorities. They did not return to the site. They merely gave the arriving officer directions to the area of the discovery and rented a local hotel room. Neither of the officers even wanted to imagine what was inside that motorhome. But then again, they would soon find out that it wasn't what was inside, but what was outside that would change their lives forever. There's already a crime scene tape placed in numerous scattered parts of the area, and little white flags on metal stakes stuck in the ground marking evidence. Evidence of ripped clothing, bodies, body parts, separated limbs, a pile of bowels, pieces of loose flesh clinging to muscle tissue. What used to be three bodies that just three hours before had been a happy family on vacation, there to create happy memories for years to come. A father, a mother, and a young son. The happiness was gone. Destroyed by a psychotic madman. Or was it men? A murderous rage had taken place, one so abhorrently appalling that there were few witnesses to the scene that had been able to keep their composure or held their recently eaten dinners down. At first sight, the victims appeared to be butchered by some unnameable weapon, possibly an axe, chainsaw. Upon further inspection, however, by the first arriving coroner, the wounds on the bodies were determined to have not been caused by a sharp instrument, rather by some piercing, well-defined claws, and other wounds by some keen mordantly long incisors. Wildcat? Bear? Wolves? The coroner shook his head in a baffled disagreement with each guest from the officers. The claw marks, for instance, on the backs of the father's corpse were distinctively made by four long claws with smaller digits, like a thumb on the side with a span that was wider than a man's print, wider and different than any bear's mark, with deep deliberate gouges in the flesh. Rake marks from an angry unknown source trying to grab its prey that was no doubt trying to escape. Wildcat and Wolves theory were quickly dismissed as the open wound marks were apparently made by a more sizable animal source. The bite marks were much larger than any mountain lion, wolf, or coyote. Whatever did it had a long snout, more sizable teeth. There were also indications in the larger areas of the cadavers of bite marks where the flesh, meat, and bone had been yanked away from the body like a human who bites into an apple and leaves the impressions of his bite and teeth marks. So were the open wounds on these individuals. 
Bears? Well, they weren't native to the area. But who knows, maybe a grizzly did sneak in some way. But that was far-fetched. He would have had to travel several states and cross several rivers to even get close to that part of Kentucky. Everyone present was betting on the bear hypotheses anyway, and no one even thought of anything else to be the cause of such a savage attack. It was a bear. It had to be. From the back door of the motorhome, an officer stepped down slowly, holding in his hand some type of garment. A dress. A small dress. That would have to fit a small girl around the age of five or so. He informed the onlookers that there were more little girls' clothing packed inside the coach. This meant that there was a missing person, or an absent body. A member of the family. They all prayed she was still alive somehow, hiding somewhere. A search began. As time went by, additional law enforcement employees arrived, as well as a few volunteer rescue squad members. Groups were spread out in assigned areas to examine and explore. Another coroner arrived to assist in the identification and causes of death, and much later a third one showed up, this one from a nearby state. All types of samples were picked up and placed in plastic bags, marked as evidence, and carefully stowed away. As they were packing up what appeared to be one of the father's arms, one of the doctors noticed something wrapped between the dead fingers. Some tweezers slowly untangled a clump of long, gray, and brown hair. This too was placed in a bag and marked, put away to be analyzed at the labs later. From somewhere in the nearby woods, about 50 yards from the campfire, a scream was heard. A man's shriek that turned into a long wail and then whimpering. As the others arrived, they could see by the gleam of several flashlights that the cop was holding in his hat, one hand, and his light in the other. There was blood on his face. The front of his shirt and on the brim of his hat, more blood could be seen dripping on him. It was coming from above, high in the trees. The flashlight swung, searching for the source of the mysterious bleeding. A very small hand could be seen dangling down from the tree limb way up high, as well as a slender, lifeless leg still had its white sock on the other foot. The missing child had been located. It had been one of the first officers that arrived on the scene that the blood had trickled upon, hitting his hat first, forcing him to look up, and then the feeling, the thick, cold fluid sprinkling his face, then sliding down his neatly buttoned shirt. It had been him that screamed. The little girl had apparently been carried up into the tree and leisurely eaten upon while carefully laid across a large tree branch. More of the same long gray and brown hair was found sticking in the bark of the tree near her body. This episode of the Paranormal Pit Stop Podcast is made possible because of listeners like you, our patrons. Because of your incredible support, we can make this spooky dream of ours possible. So with our utmost gratitude, we would like to say, from the bottom of our hearts, a huge thank you to all of our patrons, Joy, Brittany, Zach, and Evan. We couldn't do it without you. 